There are so many harbingers of spring in Boston. You've got the return of the swan boats at the Public Garden, opening day at Fenway, and Patriots Day, a state holiday in both Massachusetts and Maine, originally on April 19th, but today the third Monday of the month. The holiday, representing the start of the American Revolution in Lexington and Concord, features all kinds of events. Paul Revere rides into town a few times. The Lexington Minutemen reenact the battle on the town common. Concord has its dawn salute, and the nearby Minuteman National Historical Park goes crazy with programs all week long. There's another event that day that commands the attention of runners all over the world, the Boston Marathon. At 126 years old, it has its own unique history. And it's directly tied to the very first set of Olympic Games in Athens in 1896. Today, running in the Boston Marathon is a bucket list item for runners, and even some non-runners around the globe. Even at the beginning, though, the Boston Marathon was a big deal, attracting only 15 participants that first year, but hundreds of thousands of spectators. By virtue of its connection to the inaugural Olympic Games, it is also tied directly to the birth of this unique sport. Its 126-year existence is worthy of several history books, a couple of novels, and at least five full-length movies. But its humble yet important beginnings are also history. To get the full picture of how the Boston Marathon connects to the birth of marathoning, we need to take a step back to the sports long ago, and I mean long ago, roots. So you're training for Boston today? Well, the reason you need to go out and do those long training runs dates back centuries. 25, in fact. The marathon exists today because of an earth-shaking historical event that happened more than 2,500 years ago in 490 B.C. during the first Persian invasion of Greece. King Darius set out to punish Greece for its involvement in the Ionian Revolt. He sent a fleet to crush Athens, landing in a small town of Marathon, 25 miles northeast of the city. The Athenians, with advanced knowledge of the attack, sent a small force to Marathon. Meanwhile, Pheidippides, a messenger, was sent running the 150 miles to Sparta, asking for reinforcements. Unfortunately, he arrived during the high holy days, and the Spartans would not leave their homes. Pheidippides returned to the front with the bad news. For five days, the two armies were in a stalemate, when the Athenians, with a much smaller force, made the decision to stage a preemptive attack. The Athenian general gambled. By thinning out the center of his lines and strengthening the wings, he was able to surround the Persians on three sides, causing devastating casualties and driving the survivors back to their ships. The Athenians knew that the Persians would now head straight for Athens. Again, Pheidippides was sent running. This time he covered the 25 miles back to Athens to let the city know that the Persians had been defeated at Marathon and that they should prepare for an attack. 
Legend has it that he reached the gates of the city yelling, Rejoice, we conquer. The city erupted with the chant, We are victorious. Unfortunately, poor Pheidippides, at least according to the story, collapsed and died. No one is sure of the exact circumstances. Fact and fiction have long since been blurred. In fact, there is evidence that Pheidippides shows up as a courier on the payroll list two years later. But legend tells it differently. Robert Browning reintroduced his story in 1879. Run, Pheidippides, one race more. The mead is thy due. Athens is saved. Thank Pan, go shout. He flung down his shield. Ran like fire once more, in the space twixt the fennel field, and Athens was stubble again, a field which a fire runs through. Till in he broke, rejoice, we conquer. Now let's skip ahead to the 1890s. Baron Pierre de Coubertin had a grand idea. He wanted to revive the Olympic Games. They were an ancient set of games that had been held in Olympia, Greece from 776 B.C. to A.D. 393. They were so important that wars were stopped in order to carry them out. Working with various sports governing bodies, de Coubertin established a full slate of events, some directly from the ancient games and some more modern competitions. He sought, however, something dramatic to serve as the closing event. While he pondered this problem, a good friend of his came up with the answer, a sport that did not exist in the ancient version of the games, nor did it exist during the planning of the modern games. Not every sport can point to its founder. There are a few, however. Basketball has Dr. James Naismith. Volleyball can thank YMC Physical Education Director William G. Morgan for what he called Mintonette. Depending on the story you believe, baseball might have been created by Abner Doubleday. The marathon's origins point directly to Michael Briel, an unlikely candidate for inventor of a sport. Briel was a professor of comparative grammar and is often called the father of modern semantics. He had no official connection to athletics of any kind. As plans were being drawn out for the first Olympiad set for Athens in 1896, De Coubertin's friend, Michael Briel, had an idea for a brand new sport. He was thinking more in terms of history and romance than athletics. In honor of the country's messenger of battle, Phidippides, he proposed a race roughly retracing the ancient warrior's route from the plains of Marathon to the Olympic Stadium in downtown Athens. His idea was to make the race the grand finale of the Games. The plan for this new race was met with enthusiasm by de Coubertin and also by the Athens Olympic Organizing Committee. They hoped for a victory by a countryman, so they staged a qualifying race a month before the Games to choose the finest long-distance runners to represent them. On March 22, 1896, the world's first marathon race was held, and it was won by Karyaleos Vasilakos with a time of 3 hours 18 minutes. A second preliminary race was staged a couple of weeks later. The big event, the first Olympic marathon, was run on April 10th. As the Games were nearing completion, the Greeks were very disappointed that no one from Greece had won any of the track and field events, despite the nation's historic ties with the sport. The marathon was the last hope. 
Thirteen men lined up in the town of Marathon, hailing from five nations, and began the dusty trek to Athens. The early leader was a Frenchman, and things did not bode well for the home country. At about 19 miles, Edwin Flack of Australia took over the lead. Right on his heels, however, was Spiridon Lewis of Greece. Lewis had stopped in a small town earlier for a glass of wine and assured people there that he would eventually take the lead. His prediction came true at about 20 miles. A short time later, Flack not only dropped out, but he had to be carried from the course, leaving the hometown hero virtually alone. As soon as Spiridon Lewis moved into first place, Athens police relayed the news to the Olympic Stadium. A cry of Helene, Helene was taken up by the spectators and continued as a steady roar until Lewis entered the stadium. The Greek king's two sons, Crown Prince Constantine and Prince George, jumped from the stands and onto the track carrying the Greek flag and followed Spiridon Lewis over the finish line in a time of 2 hours, 58 minutes, and 50 seconds. As he won, the stadium chant switched to cheers of We Are Victorious. In storybook fashion, a new sport began. So, how did this long-distance race make its way to Boston, and how did the Boston race become preeminent? The Boston Marathon, or the BAA American Marathon Race, as it was originally dubbed, is the most prestigious foot race in the world, and is the oldest annual marathon. It began in April 1897, just a few months after the inaugural Olympic Games were held in Athens. As I said earlier, the Boston Marathon is a direct spin-off from that event. Members of the Boston Athletic Association constituted a large portion of the American Olympic team, including half the track and field participants, part of the shooting group, and the team manager. Thomas Pelham Curtis, writing for MIT's Technology Review in July 1924, described what it was like in Athens. Crowns crowds paraded the streets daily with bands cheering, shouting, and yelling. All business was at a standstill. He says one noticeable point was the total lack of organized cheering at the stadium, which form of expression seems to be confined entirely to this country. Our team was assigned a box in the front row, some 50 feet from that of the king and queen, and we gave at intervals the standard BAA cheer. We found we were listened to with a great deal of interest and surprise, so much so that when we had given no cheer for an hour, a special aide of King George stopped in front of our box and said, His Majesty requests will you make that peculiar noise for him. This we promptly did. When the BAA contingent returned home from the Games, U.S. Olympic team manager and BAA member John Graham was inspired to import one piece of the Olympics, the marathon race, here. As Pheidippides, the Greek messenger of battle, was the honoree in Athens, America's messenger of battle, Paul Revere, served the purpose for Boston. The BAA organized a track and field meet for a small stadium called the Irvington Oval, near the BAA headquarters on Exeter Street and scheduled it for April 19, 1897, Patriots Day. The Oval was a remnant of a baseball park called the Dartmouth Street Grounds. As with the Olympics the year before, the marathon was to be the grand finale. 
Originally, a route followed that of Revere in reverse was considered, but instead Graham decided to emulate the Athens course. He planned roughly 20 miles of flat or downhill running, followed by a series of hills, and then finishing flat into the stadium. The Olympic course was 40 kilometers, or 24.8 miles, so he and a friend, Herbert H. Holton, rode their bicycles that distance west from Copley Square over the Newton Hills through Framingham and Natick until they arrived at Metcalfe's Mill in Ashland. That's where they would start. At noon on Patriots Day, Graham drew a line in the road with his heel and told the 15 runners to line up. He yelled, Go! and a tradition was born. Nearly three hours later, two hours, 55 minutes, and 10 seconds to be exact, John J. McDervitt arrived at the Oval to tumultuous cheering. There may have been very few runners, but the spectators along the way from that very first race have always numbered in the hundreds of thousands. Through the years, the distance has been slightly adjusted. At the London Olympics in 1908, the measurement was switched to use English standards and was intended to cover 25 miles, or 0.2 longer than the previous Olympics, as well as the Boston course. When King Edward and Queen Alexandria requested that it begin at Windsor Castle, a mile was added. A final loop on the stadium track brought it up to 26 miles, 385 yards. When Boston conformed to this new distance, it stuck and has been the same everywhere ever since. For the next quarter century, marathon races around the world came and went, but only the Olympic race every four years and Boston annually were constants. Today, with its history and demanding qualifying times, running a marathon here remains as a badge of honor. In fact, earning a BQ or Boston qualifier, is in itself a big deal. A race in California has what it calls the BQ Bell at the finish line. It's rung every time a finisher qualifies for Boston. To every marathoner, in fact, most runners of any distance, there are three magic words. I ran Boston. Thanks for listening. Come back next time for more Tales and Tidbits of New England as we dig out another story from Allen's Archives.